It's another edition of Baseball and Beyond. Today, a special guest, a Hall of Famer. They call him the Commish. He's Rick Hummel. Hello, Rick. Thank you for doing this. You're welcome, Brad. Uh, pleasure to be on. You're talking into a phone. I mean, nineteen. when did you start doing your writing, and did you ever think that we'd be putting something broadcast from a phone? And This is like Jetson stuff. Well, they had crank phones, I think, in my day. We get on the, on the phone and get the operator your number, like 8808 or whatever. <laughs> no, I did not envision computers. Or I didn't envision airplane travel, but not computers and, uh, and not the Internet and anything like that, no. And let me ask, so the commish is your nickname. I was just curious. I, I think I know why, but what, where did this come from? When did it start? Well, it originated uh, in the post-dispatch offices. We used to have a uh, table football league, pro football involving dice and cards and stuff, and the boards were very complicated. And I was one of the few people who knew how to read them. So I would have to go to all the games because the other games, otherwise the games would take eight hours, you know, if I didn't <laughs> go and read. So I was the commissioner of the league, and then I became commish, I guess, for whatever baseball knowledge I had, and so it stuck. Wait, so what was your first year? I guess let's talk about the post-dispatch. Let me know the first year you were uh, covering the Cardinals with the post. I did my first game in 1973, and then I did some backup work and took over the beat in 78 and then until 2001, through 2001. Then I was a baseball columnist for a few years, and now I'm uh, kind of like the uh, backup beat writer, kind of where I started in 1973. <laughs> How many games have you seen? Can you keep count at all? Do you, do you even try and do that? I tried the other day. I think, I mean, this is kind of broad, between five and 6,000, I guess. As a Cardinal fan, I would assume that's probably number three on the list between Mike Shannon and Red Shandings, and between guys who played and didn't play, maybe you're number one then. Well, I hadn't thought about that. Uh, Mike is probably in there. I mean, does Red get credit for staying only for six innings sometimes now? Or I don't know. You know, that's only two-thirds of a game in my mind. Yeah, Phil Rizzuto did, so we'll give it, <laughs> give it to you. So you've seen some baseball in St. Louis, and that's kind of the reason why I wanted to talk and pick your brain, because I know that we've done this before, but you've seen everything. You've, you've covered these managers. Um, I, I think we have to start with Whitey, because I think people love Whitey, and I think you got along with Whitey pretty well. Tell me a little bit about what it was like day-to-day dealing with Whitey. Um, what, what I remember um, and what I, re- I think I've learned is he didn't like TV people at all. He really liked newspaper writers. He liked to, I think, w- control the message maybe. What, what do you think it was about that, that he just wasn't really into the TV thing and, and enjoyed having you there every night after a game to talk about the game? Well, he told me once that he used to deliver papers, and he also was a very avid reader. And his goal was to have something appear, some quote of his appear in the newspaper that hadn't been on TV or radio the night before. So that was always a, a pleasure. And he was the, the best ever to deal with because he would talk to you in his office hours before a night game. He'd be doing his own stats. You know, these are all computerized now, but he had all these different colored pencils for each pitcher, you know, and it's a very intricate situation. And we'd just be, he'd like to have somebody to talk to as he was doing all his charts. And he had these big file cabinets over in the corner, and he had them labeled like, you know, dead for dead players who weren't playing anymore and live for players who were. And he opened the dead file one day, and he pulls it out and said, hmm, some of these guys actually are dead. (laughs) (laughs) So he had complete files and everybody, but he loved talking baseball. And I used to, if I had a question, I didn't get a chance to ask the night before. Maybe I was in a rush or something about some strategy. I would ask him, be able to ask him that next afternoon. I'd say, why did you do what you did? And most times he would have a very easy answer to understand, but use the explanation. But sometimes he said, you know, hum, I was just rolling the dice. So he didn't try to make anything more out of it than that. He was just taking a chance. 
Watching him manage every night, it seemed like, especially 1985, that's the year I grew up on this team, the fact that you didn't have a closer. And he just said, I'm going to pitch Jeff Lottie one night in the ninth. I'm going to pitch Pat Perry in the ninth. Just a little bit about the way he didn't really have, I mean, because we'll get to Tony in a moment, who had a book. <laughs> Whitey seemed like, you're right, he didn't have a book. And you said basically kind of that thing. He kind of had a hunch, right, some nights, a lot of nights. Well, he had Ricky Horton, too. He had Bill Campbell. This is before Worrell came right at the end of August. I remember at the previous December when Suter signed with the Braves, Whitey said to anybody who was in earshot, I just got 45 games dumber. <laughs> and, uh, I'll be the first manager fired probably. But he wasn't because they got through. They actually had Neil Allen as the closer of the start of the year. And he went to New York where he had pitched and had done well and then not so well. So the fans were on him a little bit. In the first game, he allowed a game-winning home run to Gary Carter in extra innings. And the next game he pitched, he walked in the winning run in the last inning. So he was 0 for 2 there, and he was soon out of this, the closer role. And then after that, he was on his way to Minnesota or White Sox or whoever they traded him to. But Whitey did what he could with what he had. And, and you're right, he, he would diff, use different guys for different situations. Sometimes you'd have Worrell playing the outfield or Ricky Horton in the outfield. Briefly, Worrell played outfield like three or four times in regular season games, and Whitey always put him in a spot where the ball would never be hit to him. Yet, at the end of the game, as we go into another year or so when Worrell had established himself, Whitey always had the matchup he won against the Mets, for instance, in, in 85 and even in 87. At the end of the game, he'd always have Worrell facing Tim Tuffle or something like that rather than the guy facing uh, Ken Daly or something. He always had a right-hander who could get that right-handed hitter out. Tell me a little bit about that, because you guys did have a relationship. It seems like, one, there wasn't as many games on TV, and, and it feels like the managers are so much more guarded. I know Tony was guarded. It seems like Mike's pretty guarded. Uh, with media folks, I think you know they're very, very safe in what they say, and and you've kind of come through that. Where in the '70s it didn't seem like that it was that way, or the '80s because, like I said, it wasn't as much television. Is is television the big deal, or would and think about maybe if Whitey was managing a team now in his prime, would it be the same? Would he be the same? What, what do you think? I think he'd be roughly the same, although I think he'd have to get used to the fact that there are many more media credential people around, whether they're TV or radio or, or internet or bloggers or whatever, there's probably three to four times as many as there used to be in this city, even counting two newspapers, the Globe and the Post. So that would take some getting used to. I think he'd be about the same, but would he like TV people any better? I don't know. I think he probably would, but he didn't have much use for him in the day. Yeah, well, what was with us? So he, I know Zipper Zappa was his favorite, <laughs> which a lot of people could see that. He was kind of the bombastic goofball sports guy. But what was it about the TV guy that he didn't like? You, In my opinion, if you're saying something, you're never going to get misquoted on TV because they're going to show what you're saying. So what was his thing about TV guys? I think to some degree he was fearful that they might use one of his quotes, but it would be taken out of context. You know, the whole explanation wouldn't be there. It would just be the, the money quote, you know, and then and it doesn't exactly what he meant at, at that time. So maybe he was fearful of that. Or maybe I think he knew that, that whether it was me or whoever else covering for a newspaper would express his ideas the way he wanted them expressed. When we get to the end of his time here, it just seemed like it was still kind of early for him not to be managing this team. And then he didn't really go manage. He went to do the Angels thing, and then he stopped. And it was still felt like he had many years um, left. What I mean, do you think it was kind of when he – obviously, he had, Gussie had gone in 89, so he didn't have that in 1990. But what do you think happened to him that he just said, you know what, I, I don't think I want to do this anymore? Well, specifically on the team here, there were a lot of free agents in 1990, and he thought – 
that the distraction of being a free agent affected the play of, of several guys. They had a whole bunch of guys, you know, Coleman, Pendleton, McGee, Rawford. I'm not saying those are the three guys that they affected, but those were th among the free agents they had. And the, the team didn't play, you know. They, for whatever reason, the pitching wasn't very good. That's one reason. But they just didn't play nearly as well as they had other years. And Whitey, one day on the West Coast trip, said, I've had enough of this. You know, I can't get through to these guys anymore. I, I, I'm trying to manage the way I used to, and it's not working. So I think he had one other decent chance to come back with the Red Sox, and, and that didn't work out uh, a number of years later. And the front office with the Angels worked out for a little bit. He liked the Cowboy, liked working for Gene Autry. But that wasn't his cup of tea either. And I think um, at a certain point when he got into his you know, 60s and 70s, he didn't care about managing anymore. He'd just rather watch him on TV and come to the park. Well, and then lastly on Whitey, just for you, what, what did that relationship mean to you? And, and was it something where did you, do you consider yourself friendly and friends? And I guess at the end now you can be, but at that time, you know, it's a, a reporter uh, subject type job uh, as a beat writer. But at that time, because like, to me it seems like you can't really get that close to a Mike Matheny anymore, no matter how good of a, uh, a reporter or, or whatever you are and Whitey. And, and even back in that day, it seemed like, Don Zimmer you could do that with, or even Billy Martin if you, if you had a drink or two late at night with him. Is that, is that, am I seeing that right? Whitey's one of my best friends, and I think he was when he managed this team too. Uh, he, was, he taught me more about baseball than anybody I've ever come across, and that covers a lot of areas, how to watch a game, what to look for in a game, how to handle people, like how he handles players, how how reporters should handle players. You can handle them the same way as a manager sometimes, but most often in a different fashion. But just about baseball life in general, I, I owe him everything I've achieved in the game. Appreciate you listening, but I want to tell you about the title sponsor of this podcast. It's Massa's Restaurants. Massa's, of course, five locations. One in Newtown and St. Charles, the one in Baldwin off Manchester, Wing Haven, always fun, town and country, and Bridgeton, the old place, Italian fair, Great entrees, great portions, an affordable price. I enjoy everything on the menu. The red sauce pasta, white sauce, linguine. Oh, they've got fish. They've got Cajun chicken. They've got St. Louis-style pizza. The Big Al special. Go in and tell them Brad sent you, and you want a Big Al special, and you never know. Maybe you get a couple pieces of bacon extra on there. It's stlmasses.com is the website. That'll give you directions to the locations. It'll show you some menus. Each location is different. The bartenders are fun. Your waiters and waitresses will be a hoot, I would say. Bring your family. Bring your friends. Hang out after dinner. Hang out before dinner. It's just a fun place to go for an evening of good food and good times. There's no baloney in the cannelloni. They're the title sponsor. Tell them, Brad, your podcast friend sent you. You heard it on Baseball and Beyond, and you said, boy, we're going to give Masses a try. Also want to let you know that we've got a blog that uh, we put together. We. I put together. It sounds better if you say we. Or anyway, bradsportspage.blogspot.com. That's a little companion blog. Kind of gives you some more information on some of the things we talk about in the podcast. So go read that. You can also see other interviews that have been done and maybe catch up. Hopefully you're enjoying today's interview. Let's get back to it. Right now. 
We go total opposite. I, I don't want to skip over Joe Torre. If we have some time, we'll talk about him. But we move on to Tony in 96. Has to be totally different than what you had with Whitey. And, and I think also the fact that he was coming in here to show who's boss. I, when you talk to any player on that team, they thought, you know, they had no idea what they were getting into when this guy got in. Just a little bit about Tony when he first got here and your relationship as that started. Well, it took a while. You know, you were kind of feeling each other out for the first, I don't know, not only 96, 97, 98, maybe three or four years. And finally, one day, I'm not sure what prompted me to do this. I thought, well, I'm going to try to inject some humor into this relationship. I'm going to poke fun at him for something or other. And I, I got a chance one day, we were talking about batting averages, and I knew his average for his career was 199. I thought, well, maybe I'll throw this out there and, and, and see. So I threw that out there and, and made fun of his particular career, and his head reared back, and he started laughing. It, it was the perfect time to, to have made that transfer, as it were, and we, we got along, not that we didn't get along before, but we got along very famously after that. It's because he, he liked to be made fun of once in a while, you know. He, he liked that 199 with no home runs. That was his big league career, you know. He was a, quite a prospect, but he was a bonus baby and didn't get he had to sit on the bench for a couple of years. And then he went through the minor leagues and hurt his arm, whatever. But he was a good minor league player, but a lousy major league player. And I never hesitated to point that out when I got, I thought I was on the defensive. Yeah. He's uh, obviously was a, a tough guy to, to, to he felt like he, I felt like he really knew what the message was that he wanted out there and controlled the message, and that was his deal. And I, th I think with, you know, with Whitey, I was a little bit too young to realize what was going on media-wise. But I was just curious your thoughts on the, on the biggest difference on covering the two managers. We know that you know, Tony doesn't eat meat, Whitey does, we, all these things that are different about them. But what was the biggest difference between covering these two guys? Well, Tony's responsibilities after the game were more extensive than Whitey's because of the Fox Sports telecast where the manager has to go in the interview room after the home games and, and take on some questions. And then uh, he, he's pretty much done. I guess he might get some more in his office later. But that, those were not Tony's finest hours in the interview room there. He just no, I think they were. <laughs> <laughs> well, he did not enjoy it. And uh, some of his answers suggested as much. But you could talk to him in his office either before or after the game and get quite expansive answers, you know, and nothing that he was fearful of. I think Managers are more fearful about saying something to show up on TV rather than just talking to reporters. But he, he got better at that as we went along. But that, that TV thing was not his shtick. I, I got the sense, too, that the longer he got here, and it may, it may have been 2002 because of Daryl and Jack, the way he sort of brought this team together, I felt like he sort of started to trust more people in St. Louis than he did before that. And is that am I crazy about that? Or, or the longer that he stayed here, he realized it's a pretty easy town. There's no New York Post in here trying to dig things up, putting stuff on the back pages. Did, did, is that, am I wrong about the way I see that? No. Uh, he was an Oakland guy, lived in the Bay Area. And even when he managed the team, he's always lived in the Bay Area. And for the first few years, he didn't come back here much in the off season. <clears throat> and then gradually, as he went along, he thought it's, it's better for him to be there. And we, he started having events in town here, started to come back for different stuff, writers' dinners, and so, and even more, more things than that. Now, he, now that he's with Arizona, I think he's been here a half dozen times during this season alone. <laughs> you can't get him out of here now. <laughs> Just in your thoughts, I mean, you didn't cover him as much as you did Whitey, but just is there a – you talked about the story with the 199 hitter. Is there one thing that sticks out to you about – I think, I guess for me, it's just the fact that he was so uh, divisive 
And um, but he always did have. It seemed like he knew what he was doing, and he he didn't like people questioning it. And that, I don't know. Is there anything where you think of Tony that that maybe fans don't understand about him? That uh, you know, towards the end of his career, I, I felt like everyone sort of did think, "Great job, Tony! Two world championships." Uh, you know, that, that, I, I can I guess I'm try, just trying to think about what you would think. Lastly, about Tony. Well, I think first they they saw he had a sense of humor because we, we got to portray him in a little different light rather than the Martinette people thought he was. I think when the Daryl Kyle died and Jack Buck died in 02, I think people got a different perspective of Tony, how he shepherded that team through a very tough season. And they went on to some great seasons that, you know, the next five, six years after that, they were in the playoffs in the World Series a couple, three times. So I think uh, those things, people, the more they saw him, the more they liked him. But at first, they didn't like him. And Mike now, uh, he's into his fifth year. The team wins, they go to playoffs. Um, but like I said, I, I just feel like he's one of these a new school guy who is very protective of everything that happens. Uh, your thoughts on what you see with Mike as the manager? Well, my basis, first of all, he's had four teams. They've all been in the playoffs. And this is his fifth team, and it's as we speak, it's right there on playoff contention. So uh, that that's the way I see him. I, I see him more uh, open when the TV cameras, when the TV lights are not, and he's not the only one like that. Um, I think he's gotten the respect of his players. I think, do all the players like him? Well, no. Do all the players like any manager? No, of course not. They all didn't like Whitey. Some, like in the day, there were some players, a couple of veteran players that wanted to call a team meeting when they thought there was something going on. And when I said, no, no, that's not going to happen, I call all the team meetings here. <laughs> <laughs> so Mike is, I, I, I don't know how many team meetings they have here, but he's, he's, he's a players guy, but he can get on the players a little bit too if he has to, but he won't criticize them much in, in public, and Whitey was not always so reluctant to do so. Wrapping up uh, with this, uh, and I appreciate your time, just some thoughts on um, stories out on the road. I mean, you did this, you did the traveling, you were out there. Um, I, I'm assuming you were probably around Jack and Mike a lot, and those guys seemed like they were having a lot of fun. you have a favorite road story about being around this team, something maybe that happened before a game, out on the road, maybe you, you get luckily jump on a plane with Jack and Mike and you end up in Vegas. Anything that, uh, that kind of conjures up some fun from those days? Well, you mentioned Jack. Now, he invited me to come along with a, a group of people to Eli's restaurant in Chicago uh, after a, a day game. Most of the games were, maybe all the games were day games then. And we're in there, and there's a piano player, there's bus people, there's waiters, there's people, you know, maitre d's, cooks. During the course of the meal, but the fact he paid for the meal anyway, he's handing out $20 to everybody. He goes over to the piano player, $20. Guy clears the table, $20. $20 for the waiter coming up and asking what you want, $20. $20 for the maitre d's, $20 for the cook. <laughs> it's unbelievable. I thought, wow, this is big leagues here. <laughs> and he did that a lot. It wasn't just that night. He did that to people on the street after a ball game, too. Oh, I know, I know. Uh, it's a good thing that Carol helped him dress better later in his in life because he, he was worse than me at dressing. He would have an idea about colors, but he was colorblind. So he'd have like purples and greens and reds. It was horrible. Yeah, but today that looks great. I know. He's way, way, he's way ahead of his time, probably. Uh, you guys, I think, did become good friends. I know that um, he wrote a poem for 9-11. He read it it's, uh, September 17th, and he had you kind of look it over. Tell me a little bit about your guys' relationship, especially towards the end, because uh, I just feel like everybody loved Jack, and, and to be kind of in his inner circle, that had to be kind of a neat thing for you. Well, two things. One is, I'll talk about the poem second. First is that 
We're going downstairs one day early in my career as a writer, and at the old ballpark, you came down the elevator, you walked through the corridor, and the one clubhouse is on the right, one's on the left, and the umpire's room was right straight through, right behind home plate. He said, you ought to go in there and talk to the umpires before a game sometime. I said, well, why is that? It says no admittance on the door. It's all like skull and crossbones almost. He says, no. He says, if some kind of play comes up where you need to find out what happened, they'll be more than happy to explain it to you if they, if you know, if they know who you are. So I tried that, and he was dead on. And I became friends with all the umpires. I'm still friends with most of them. There's some new ones I don't know very well. But he was exactly right. They would explain stuff to me. There would be a big crowd of reporters, and one guy would look out and say, where's Hummel? Come on in. <laughs> I, I got to be the pool reporter for a bunch of playoffs in the World Series because I knew I, I could get something out of the umpires. So that's one thing he, he, he meant to me. As far as the poem, there was a workout uh, maybe a day or two before the first game, maybe the Saturday or Sunday before the Monday night game. And he pulled something out of his coat, kind of rumpled up, and said, here, take a look at this. I'm going to read this Monday night. And I read it, and it was spellbinding. You know, I was, I was. Uh, it wasn't quite as much fun for me that night, quite as, as, as impactful because I'd already read it. You know, if I hadn't read it before, I would have. You know, but I'd already had my thrill to see it. But uh, I, I told him how good it was, and uh, and uh, he delivered it in great fashion. But that's that's how that story went. I I, I wish. I'm glad he showed it to me, but I almost wish I hadn't seen it beforehand. Yeah, it's like a movie. You don't want to know the ending. Uh, last thing, I, I just I appreciate your time, and I really think, um, you know, we think of Bob Briggs, we think of Jack Bucks, we think of the people. I mean, your name is on the press box door there, your picture's out there. What does it mean to you to know that you're still alive and <laughs> they've named this press box after you, and you walk down into the locker room, everyone's going to see a picture of you. You are sort of the uh, kind of the godfather of sports writers here. Um, and you're in the Hall of Fame. All these things. I mean, what what does it mean to you that your career is is where it is? And I guess, lastly, how long how long can Rick Hummel go? Seventy was uh, over the spring, and uh, you got thirty more years in you. <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, it's very flattering that that the name is on the door and the pictures in the hallway. And I I'm surprised almost every day by how much people care about what I do. I don't think I'm that important to the operation here, but I'm, I'm glad they think I am. How many more years? Well, I said the other day, I think maybe five more would get me to 75 years of age and 50 at the post-dispatch. That might be a good time to, to uh, close it down. But probably now I should take the, the ball player's approach, you know, one year at a time. <laughs> You've learned from everyone else. Well, I really appreciate your time. It's been a great catching up with you. And there's so much more to cover. So maybe in another couple weeks, a couple months, me and you will sit in this dark, empty room with no tables and we'll talk more about players and all. There's so much to go over, but I appreciate your time, Commissioner. Thank be, you so much. That'd be great. My pleasure. All right. That's uh, Rick Hummel, baseball writer, Hall of Famer for the St. Louis Post-Dispatch on Baseball and Beyond. Subscribe on iTunes for more podcasts and follow me on Twitter at Brad Stravenger. Thanks for listening.